Tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Nursing pathways, what's possible? The healthcare industry is grappling with pandemic challenges that threw the glaring spotlight on weaknesses in our hospitals and care facilities. Staff shortages are one. We started yesterday with a conversation around nursing licensure that started with the Hawaii Nursing Association. Uh, today we hear from Kaiser Permanente Hawaii about what it's doing to encourage local residents to get into the healthcare profession in high need areas. Here's Dionisia Lapaga from Kaiser Permanente. I personally am excited being a, a nurse practitioner and has actually worked for Kaiser Permanente for 33 years. This is the first time that we have done this, to my knowledge, in our organization where we are investing in our own our current workforce. And what it is, is it's an LPN residency program. We're happy to announce that we've partnered with the Hawaii State Center for Nursing, UH Maui System, Local 5, and the Ben Hanno. And together we've mapped out to identify the LPN, which is a licensed practical nurse. And it is an 18-month program where individuals from uh, current employees within Kaiser Permanente would apply, meet certain criteria. And we are starting off with our first cohort of 18 students, 10 of them being from Kaiser Permanente, currently in a variety of roles, medical assistants, a ward clerk, ED tech. And what will happen is they'll embark on an 18-month journey where they will do didactics with the University of um, Hawaii at Manoa, virtual online. And then they will do actual clinical settings two to three days a week within Kaiser Permanente and an outside um, clinical environment. What a great opportunity. I mean, we're talking professional development here. We've got people that are already in the healthcare system. You know, they're, they're familiar with how things work, but then they can take advantage of opportunities to do something different. Absolutely. And in fact, we had quite a few applicants that were have shown interest. So we're hoping that this is one of, of many cohorts as we begin this, this journey. The other thing I should note is that these are employees of Kaiser Permanente who currently um, are working full time. And what will happen is the didactic portion is done virtually. So it's made easy for them. And then the clinical settings are in environments that may be in what they currently work in, but in a different role as a student or in other areas. So they'll get the wide variety of experiences from OBGYN, primary care, urgent care, and specialty. So we're really excited about this because this is really investing in our current workforce. Currently, we have a around 40 LPN vacancies within our market alone, and it's a very difficult to fill position in Hawaii. Wow, that's a lot. So that's across the state? Um, in terms of just booth in Kaiser Permanente. You know, we were hearing about the nursing shortages, and, you know, we've had to fly in uh, nurses from other states. But, yeah, uh, when we've got that critical need in that area, that's a little bit probably tougher to fill. 
It is. It's really tough. So we have many different disciplines within the nursing realm, um, medical assistants. We have licensed practical nurses, registered nurses, and advanced practice registered nurses. So this is the program is focusing on the practical nurse, which is the LPN. So after 18 months, they will sit for a testing and very optimistic um, that they will be successful in that. And then they'll have that opportunity to get into regular LPN positions within Kaiser Permanente. Is this modeled after another program, let's say in another state within uh, Kaiser Permanente's system? Great question. So there were similar programs in our Colorado market that we took some of the foundations and and, um, processes with it, and then we developed it here um, within our own Hawaii market. I want to really call out, it's been a wonderful partnership with Unite Here Local 5 um, that we have worked with their leaders in the planning of this um, because it's a win-win for for everybody, whether it be union or management or even the um, UH system. And so I just want to do a call out to uh, Daniel Kerwin and Leah Rabe over at Unite Here Local 5 who worked really hard to partner with us to get this program off the ground. And Local 5, people may be familiar, you know, they uh, represent uh, hotel workers, but they also represent workers uh, in the healthcare system. So Correct. It, it's nice to hear that, yeah, there's, there's some partnering going Going on because at the end of the day, it's our people here in our community taking care of our own. It is, absolutely. And the other thing to note are that these positions are frontline. Um, many of them have worked many years as a medical assistant or a uh, ward clerk and may not have ever had the opportunity to actually go back to school, you know, and invest in their professional development. This is a win-win because they will continue to work some of their hours and then also get into this um, program. Our first cohort started two weeks ago, and they will begin clinicals next week. 18 months, and maybe we can see them uh, in the workforce? I am so optimistic. You know, our greatest asset are, are in our people within our organization, and so this is just one of of a couple programs that I can think of that that really are our expression of how valuable our employees are and investing in our own. And how does this training work? I mean, if they are currently doing other jobs, so are they holding down that and then doing this on the side, or are they just jumping whole hog, you know, into this, you know, this new program? Uh, and then does that mean that there are vacancies then within the Kaiser system because you're moving people around? Great question. So what happens is typically they are uh, 40 hours of work, and so they'll maintain. um, The program is um, one day a week of a didactic and two days of actual clinical hands-on. So there's a a variety of different ways that they're working. Um, If they are in urgent care, sometimes there are extended hours or weekend clinicals. They will maintain um, two days a week of their regular job within their current role. And then um, they are supported by a Ben Hudno um, trust, and which will help them for compensation on um, the didactic days. And then Kaiser are using our um, call-in staff to support them when they actually have to do clinical, because obviously they will have to be in a different role. And as a student, as they get that practical experience on the floor, well, is there a breakdown that you can share, you know, or is it more female than male? Because, you know, generally nursing typically tends to draw more women than men. 
Right. So I'm happy. I'm actually looking at our first cohort. Um, we actually have, um, for the Kaiser group, we have nine females and one male. So a nice variety. We have people from um, primary care, dermatology, oncology, currently in their role. We also have people from the hospital, a ward clerk and a hospital aide, a technician, who all, so it's a nice mix that have been um, put into this first cohort of 10. Uh, and we actually have one person from Maui who works in pediatrics who's also participating in it. And of course, she'll do her clinicals on the island of Maui. Well, that's great. And then uh, what else do we have uh, here on Oahu? Is there anything that we've got to support you know, that system? In terms of other programs? Yep. In the hospital, um, they have embarked in 20, October, around October of 2021, they embarked in a, um, an RN nurse residency program over at our Moana Loa Medical Center. Um, this was a partnership with the Hawaii State Center for Nursing in which um, they started a program. And so far to date, 51 residents have gone through this program. And what it is is basically these are um, new grad RNs who are licensed that are put in a cohort of a residency program, which is about a year, and they will have um, a preceptor that they um, are given over um, anywhere from eight to 24 weeks, depending on the need and specialty. And they actually go through a program where they get experience in new specialized areas, emergency room, our um, NICU, neonatal intensive care unit, our operating room, our ICU, and then that better prepares them. The residency program is a, it's a very solid system that is enacted in our healthcare throughout our country. And we have, of course, physician residency programs. We have nurse practitioner residency programs, but RN residency. So typically when you graduate as an, a new RN, many of these nurses cannot get in um, because they don't have the experience to these specialized areas. So many of them find that they have to travel to the mainland to get this experience and to get into a residency program. So I am really proud that this has been um, a program that's been in place since 2021. Um, and we've so far have graduated 35 registered nurses from this program. So this allows them to get just another dimension of nursing within a hospital setting right here in Hawaii. Exactly. And these are our, our very own nurses who may have gone to uh, our the school systems within Hawaii, and now they have the opportunity to get in. Um, say you graduated and you wanted to, to go straight into telemetry or NICU or the emergency room, this would allow you to get into this program to work um, that time, um, about a year, side by side with a preceptor, so a fellow nurse to gain that experience to make you much better prepared as they go into these areas of specialty, which we do know have high vacancies for registered nurses. Again, another way of investing in our own local professional development. We've been hearing from uh, Dionisia Lapaga about the programs that Kaiser Permanente Hawaii has started to attract uh, more residents into the nursing profession, both on Maui and here on Oahu.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, ooahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're remembering the life of an American blues musician who's found a home and new musical directions in Hawaii. He was born Henry St. Clair Fredericks in New York City in 1941, but performs under a stage name, and that's the name that we're looking for today. He grew up in Massachusetts and still remembers the first time he heard Hawaiian music on his father's shortwave radio, saying it was the sweetest sound he had ever heard. He's been performing for over 50 years and is known for merging his country blue style with musical forms from around the world. On the islands, he plays his songs on his national steel guitar with his hula blues band, and he's been accompanied by local virtuoso Bobby Ingano on his lap steel. It's the sound that inspired him so long ago, and this morning, we're looking for his stage name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareetHawaii.com. This Saturday, join us in person for the return of HPR's Atherton Concert Series with Uhe Uhene. Experience an evening of uplifting harmonies from this trio of cousins. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from The Creative City, featuring jazz in the park at Dr. Sun Yat-sen Memorial Park in Chinatown, 5.30 p.m. tomorrow. Details at thecreativecity.org. hear about minors being arrested for committing crimes, but what happens once they get in the system? Well, lawmakers are taking up bills this session that deal with juvenile fines. Should the families be held accountable for damage done? HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us today. Good morning. 
Good morning, Catherine. So this bill would prohibit assessing fees, fines, and other court costs against juveniles. And imposing fines on minors isn't so common anymore to begin with. So judges and attorneys usually have youth do a community service. And studies have shown that fees and fines can adversely affect youth from changing or leading from changing their ways or leading parents and guardians to have to pay for fines rather than seek help for a child. And Representative Sunny Ganadin of Oahu introduced House Bill 317. We have a lot of data from nonprofit service providers, people who work with kids that suggest that youth fines and fees don't work to assist young people in becoming healthy adults, in becoming capable members of society. These fines are normally nominal. Youth are not usually engaged in the kinds of crimes that involve major pieces of property, a lot of money, and there's really no need to levy fines against them. We actually know a lot about adverse childhood effects, what we call ACEs. We have some good longitudinal data that suggests that we need to treat young people like young people. You know, their brains are still developing up until their mid-20s. I mean, mine was. And so learning to change a justice system that, that takes those best practices into account or working with kids and also taking into account the diversity of our culture here in Hawaii that knowing that these fines have been levied inconsistently, usually against Pacific Islander youth and their families. And the bill already has support from the Office of the Public Defender, as well as some attorneys who've um, come and publicly testified uh, in support of it. Andrew Park is in Oahu First Circuit Court, uh, family court judge, and he says the court rarely imposes fines on juveniles already, though it may happen in some cases. And during this bill's public hearing on Tuesday, Representative Diamond Garcia asked for an example of when a fine would be imposed. An example that I can give from my own personal experience is there's currently a statute for driving without license for for, for minors, which requires either community service or a fine for a minor. And in an instance where a young adult had a job and was in school and preferred to pay the fine rather than take away from their studies or lose hours at work by agreement, I impose that fine. But it's Representative Garcia, as you noted, something that's rare. And we would not typically do that. It's interesting, you know, because I'm thinking when there are fines associated, I'm thinking like, let's say if they're taggers, you know, if there's some criminal property mm-hmm. damage that they would pay up. But I don't know. Yeah, it's more they're more looking at community service. So that kind of instill that when you do something bad, you know, you should clean it up instead of having to pay these large fines. And eventually it can become a snowball effect. So um, Judge Park kind of submitted um, testimony on behalf of the judiciary, and it's mostly in favor of the bill. Uh, one part of the bill would discharge or um, remove prior assessed debt retroactively. Um, and Park said that would pre- present a great challenge um, because this is something that needs to be researched and may affect existing contracts and agreements with collection agencies. Mm-hmm. So Park does see some concern in that part of the bill that may be unconstitutional per a Supreme Court decision. The case that was referenced, the United States Supreme Court case, had to deal with um, Congress had passed a law which then became an amendment to the Securities Exchange Act. And that amendment, Section 27A, required the courts to reopen final judgments 
And in deciding that case, the United States Supreme Court concluded, and I'll quote, we know of no previous instance in which Congress has enacted retroactive legislation requiring an Article III court to set aside a final judgment and for good reason, the Constitution's separation of legislative and judicial powers denies it the authority to do so. Section 27A, that section referenced, is unconstitutional to the extent that it requires federal courts to reopen final judgments entered before its enactment. So that's just our concern. So it can get kind of complicated. Yeah, especially with the kind of having to go back, figure out which juvenile fees would even fall under this code. So there's a lot more that needs to go into it. And the bill passed out of the House Committee on Human Services earlier this week. And other lawmakers say they'd like to amend to really address the judiciary's concerns. And so, gosh, is, uh, are there other bills uh, that having having to do with the uh, juvenile um, offenders? Yes, with juvenile reform, um, there is one House bill also introduced by Representative Ganadin. Uh, one is specifically about trying to create more community court sessions for juveniles, uh, and it follows um, some thinking and some laws in New Zealand that instead of having uh, juveniles go to court at the courthouses, they bring it out into the community and they really instill the idea that, you know, so you did something bad, here's how you can rectify it instead of just imposing fines or sending them to detention centers. And those hearings would be held in what, community settings versus a courthouse? Mm-hmm, community settings like at a recreational center. Interesting, yeah, interesting concept. Uh, concept, uh, but yeah, I guess we'll see where these uh, bills uh, fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's a deadline coming up, I think, on bills that uh, that need hearing. So we'll see what makes it in that first round. But Absolutely. Thanks, thanks so much, Sabrina. We've been talking to Sabrina Bowden about bills in play at the legislature dealing with juvenile offenders. Uh, you can hear more of her stories on our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Check time. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story today about water woes at Hawaii Island's most popular beach. Reporter Paula Dobbin joins us this morning. Hi, Paula. Hey, Catherine. Hey, so we're talking Hapuna. Yes. Um, as you know, Hapuna is one of the most popular uh, beaches on the Big Island. It's a white sand beach, very wide beach. Um, up in Kohala, and uh, yeah, the fresh water system has been plagued with problems for years uh, on and off, you know, and now since October, the water has been completely shut off, so um, swimmers and beachgoers, volleyball players, a whole array of people who use that, um, that beach and recreation area are not happy about it. Well, you know, I went there for the first time this year, and I thought, wow, people here in the Big Island are so fortunate. What a lovely beach. And I thought they had uh, pretty decent facilities compared to some of ours here on Oahu. But your story talks about the system that's just been broken, like a chronic, it's a chronic situation. Yes. um, It was initially installed in 2010, um, but in recent years it's been, um, you know, broken and fixed more than 40 times. And um, at this point, the DLNR um, is saying that it really does need to be completely replaced. So um, Representative David Tarnas and Senator uh, Lorraine Inouye Inouye, a couple years ago got some money together, $2.2 million, 
um, set aside for DLNR to fix the problem. And um, former Governor Ige released those funds last April, but um, you know, still there's no water, and there's DLNR saying now it's going to take you know two years to replace that water line. So um, people aren't happy about that either. Well, I mean, that's really stunning you know, to think that, yeah, they just can't fix this thing. And, um, yeah, it, it's crazy. I mean, there, there are fees that people pay still to um, to go to that beach, right? Yeah. I mean, for a regular-sized car, if you're an out-of-state resident, you're going to pay $10 to park the car and then $5 just to use the beach. So, you know, that's not insignificant. Um, and since the water's been turned off, they haven't reduced the fees. Um, so I think uh, some tourists show up and they, you know, pay 15 bucks at the least or more if they have other family members. And then they arrive at the beach to find out that, you know, if they want to use the facilities, they have to use a porta potty. Um, you know, they can't shower off after swimming. You know, it's um, it's not an ideal situation, to put it mildly. Yeah, and your story uh, points out that, you know, the residents are looking at the uh, the resorts that, you know, have <laughs> awesome facilities. And, yeah, it just seems like the locals are getting shortchanged on this one. Yeah, I mean, one woman who um, brought this to my attention, Lynn Vitell, she, you know, she mentioned that not only is she irritated by the lack of water, but every time she looks up the beach and sees this nice, shiny, you know, resort with manicured lawns and nice showers and facilities, it, you know, she just feels like she's living in a third world country, you know, because she looks at her side of the beach and it's, um, you know, porta potties that she pointed out are quote, you know, baking in the sun all day. And, you know, there's no way to even rinse your hands off after using them. So, um, you know, again, not a, not an ideal situation. I, I did try to, I, you know, I reached out to DLNR to kind of talk to the, the top guy there, but he never made himself available. Um, so I was, you know, kind of going off a very short project description given to me by one of the communication specialists that just outlined, you know, the timeline for the repair um, that's, you know, not expected to be completed till the end of uh, 2024. Wow. So not too many you know, immediate answers from DLNR as to why this has dragged on so long and why they haven't prioritized it. But, um, you know, hopefully some relief. I mean, they're talking about maybe running a temporary water line, you know, while this bureaucratic process unfolds. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a common sight on the Big Island, right, to see the PVC pipes just right on the lava. Um, you know, they need to, to bring water into an area. But I'm sure the lawmakers just must be beside themselves that things are moving so slow. Yeah, you know, because, uh, you know, prices are going up all the time, right? And so, like, maybe a year or two ago when they, um, you know, got the money together, like the $2.2 million was a reasonable figure back then. But, you know, who knows what it'll cost by the end of uh, 2024. Will that funding, you know, complete the project or will they have to, you know, go back to the legislature to get additional funding? It's, um, it's unclear, but, you know, hopefully... Uh, enough people are 
you know, raising concerns about this. I, when I talked to Representative Tarnas, he said it's like the top issue that he hears about when he goes into the grocery store or when he opens his, you know, email inbox. Like, you know, this is definitely top of mind for many of his constituents. Yeah, well, we feel the pain for the uh, residents of Hawaii Island. And judging from the hits that your story's getting, yeah, lots of people are weighing in. So uh, yeah. hopefully somebody takes notice. But thank you so much, Paula. Yeah, thank you, Carson. Take care. That was reporter Paula Dahman with today's Reality Check. You can check out the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, connecting the local community with more than 120 flights daily between the islands. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, it's a live event on the incredible food culture of Hawaii. We talk with Top Chef star Sheldon Simeon, James Beard award-winning chef Robin Maii, and many more guests trying to find out why Hawaii is maybe the best place on earth to eat. Coming up on The Splendid Table. Beginning Saturday morning at 9, following Weekend Edition. often respond to issues that we cover on our show by leaving a message on our talkback line or sending an email to our talkback inbox. Uh, here are a few that came in recently. The first is in response to our interview with Governor Josh Green's nominee to head the Department of Land and Natural Resources, Don Chang. Steve Kaiser and Javi on the Big Island. Yeah, this new director for DLNR, I think she could be a breath of fresh air. Let's remember that Susan Case had a lot of a lot, a lot of backing and support as Sierra Club and the conservationist group, and I don't think she gave a balanced opinion based on her background as to where we should be going with some of the conservation laws, the fishing, the hunting, and that kind of stuff. So let's give this girl a chance. And here is one from a listener that came in after a discussion about Chief Justice Mark Reckenwald's calling on the state to do more to solve homelessness. Hi, this is Lloyd from Maui. Reality check, your discussions about increased housing, the comment that the main ingredient is missing is land and money. There's plenty of money, and that can always be printed, borrowed, etc., but there isn't plenty of land. Like all venues in any smart municipality, there's a limit of how many people can be safe and productive in those venues. I submit that our islands have limits. And here on Maui, people over and over and over again have discussed not wanting this to become a Honolulu-type environment. So is it the culture and the people, or is it the business and the votes? And this listener expressed his thoughts on improving crosswalks. This is from Bill Romerhouse from Haleiwa. I wrote letters to the editors and several of the legislatures on why they don't paint the crosswalks in bright orange or colors that people can see during the daytime or at night. 
I did contact the Department of Transportation. They came up with some kind of lame excuse that it was the National Highway Administration that banned it. All our markers on the roads are orange. Workers wear a vest. And if you go around Oahu, you can find 100 crosswalks that you can't even see that aren't painted, and you also can't see them at night. I don't understand the mentality for not trying to use brightly colored crosswalks. So I'm going to keep pursuing this, and maybe I can find somebody in our legislature that will try to get this done. Thank you. Bye. And thanks for the feedback. If you have thoughts to share about any of the stories you've heard on our show, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line at 
I was told, because I used to listen to KQED. I'm from San Francisco and from Hawaii. And so I approached Cliff Eblen at the time, and I said, I really want to do this. I want to come check it out. And this was down below by the parking lot, down by the, oh, my goodness, down by the music in the sports mm-hmm. area. Yes, I remember those buildings. <laughs> and we had egg cartons in the studio, you know. And I just thought that was the best thing. And I went and got egg cartons, and I put it in my room just so I could practice. And then we moved to Kaheka Street, which was great, which was absolutely wonderful. And there were just two of us, myself and Laura Dayton. And yes. Bob Miller was our news director, and he was doing music. So Laura and I were basically on our own. And so I just decided, you know, I'm going to just do what I'm going to do. And, and I went down to the legislature. Laura did City Hall. We just covered all those stories. I got to do a lot of stories for AP and UPI and NPR, which was wonderful. That's where I got a lot of exposure. And then I went to a journalist convention, and that's where I met one of the heads, one of the editors of the NPR newscast. And he said, I want to talk to you because I want you to to talk to somebody in Dallas. And I thought, Dallas? But what I got from Hawaii is just that, you know, everybody is just so nice and so wonderful when you want to talk to people. If you just approach them nicely, they'll talk to you. And for me growing up in Hawaii, I didn't know about being Asian, you know? It, it's not in my face. Everybody is just, you judge people by who they are, what they do, not how they look, not the color of their skin. And so it really spoiled me in terms of the kind of stories I got to cover. And I had so much freedom do anything I wanted that, you know, I went for it. And then when I got recruited to work in Dallas eight years later, what a shock that was. What was the difference? The difference was the moment I stepped in, you know, off the plane in Dallas, I was immediately made to feel like an outsider in that I would be looked at and I would be asked the question, how long, you know, how did you learn to speak such good English? You know, where are you from? I mean, you know, uh, um, originally, you know, <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? And so it was very, very segregated. Whites were in North Dallas, blacks and uh, Hispanics, that's what they call them in, in Texas. Blacks and Hispanics are in the South. And it's very, very segregated. And I had a hard time penetrating that. You know, it's like, wait a minute, can't you just look at me as a reporter? And I would go into, you know, the black neighborhood, and they would ask me, are you Connie Chung? Mm. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Are you absolutely kidding me? But it was because of my my Hawaii background, growing up with all of these cultures and blending the cultures and not even thinking about it, that's what I decided to do. I said, I'm going to do these stories. I mean, yeah, I had to do stories of Fort Worth, but I wanted to do all these different communities, and I wanted to just be out there and and cover stories that people in Dallas just took for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, the whites live there, and of course, the blacks live here, and this is what we think of them, and this is what we think of them. And I was like, well, let's challenge that. One of the biggest stories was they had this county commissioner, something that Hawaii doesn't have, but it's a county commissioner, and he would always scream racism with anything that happened. And so they had this big press conference and screamed racism in the DA's office, racism in the DA's office. And so all the reporters, they do their stories and they go off. And I said, wait a minute, 
said, what do you mean? And so I did a three-part series on this, looking at the whole judicial system, starting with the police officers, Dallas police officers, the majority of whom came from white suburbs. They did not have any any dealings at all with anybody of color. Okay, so then they come down to Dallas Police Department and whoa. The second part of the story was the district attorney's office. Yes, they had indeed, out of a hundred somewhat district attorneys, only two were black, African American. And that you know, that was a problem because most of the people that they were trying were African American or Latino or Hispanic. They didn't have any representation. And then the third part of that story was the juries. You know, on the juries were a lot of retired white people because they could take the time off. The Hispanic and African-American residents couldn't. So you have these three things creating this perfect storm of events, and that's what created all of the, a lot of the hostility, the imbalance in, you know, when it comes to crimes, when it comes to you know, the criminal justice system. And, and I loved I loved doing that. And I, I I felt like I was actually contributing to something that people had not really thought about. We've been hearing from Tracy Tong, who cut her teeth in journalism covering government here in Hawaii. She worked at uh, Hawaii Public Radio when it used to be located at the University of Hawaii campus in the Cory area. We'll con- uh, continue our conversation with Tracy after a short break. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu with neolith-centered stone, a heat, stain, and scratch-resistant surface for indoor and outdoor countertops, flooring, and walls. P-A-C-A-M-Lumber.com. Today on The Daily, for the past 50 years, how Democrats picked their nominee for president has been profoundly shaped by the first state in the nation to start that process, Iowa. We explore why in the coming days, Democrats are expected to abandon that tradition. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. We're back with the conversation we had yesterday afternoon with journalist Tracy Tong. She was on the founding team of the show The World, which airs here on HPR. She's to receive an award from the Public Media Journalists Association for her work with diversity issues across the globe. In this day and age, you know, diversity and race are still in the headlines, and it's still a tough nut to crack in in so many communities across the country. And I have to chuckle because I'm thinking, you know, you're going to be getting this award, the Leo Lee Award, I think in Texas, right? In San Antonio, yes, absolutely, yes. But San Antonio is very heavily Hispanic, Mm -hmm. but yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's certainly lots to reflect on when you think of, you know, where you've been and the kinds of stories that you've covered, you know, around diversity. Uh, One of the best instances of the stories that I covered there had to do with the KKK. So there was the stories of the KKK infiltrating small uh, town sheriff's departments. And they were very proud of the fact that you were doing this. 
So they have this press conference late at night, and these are the outskirts of, of Dallas. You know, there's Dallas-Fort Worth, and then outside of Fort Worth, there are all these, you know, smaller towns. And so that's what I was covering. I, I, just, I just wanted to do that. And so I got to know the Grand Wizard of the KKK. And, you know, everybody decides to, all the other media, they come in. They do their, you know, they do their stories and then they fly out. I mean, not fly out, but then they go home and then they move on to the next story. I wasn't like that. I wanted to know more. I wanted to dig deep and find out, okay, why is this? What are driving people to do this? Why are you so proud to be doing this? What does everybody else think about this? And so <laughs> I got called one day by the, um, the Grand Wizard. I can't remember. I think his name was John. And he says, okay, Tracy, I'm not going to have you come up to my my trailer, thank goodness, why don't we meet halfway? Why don't we meet at Denny's? <laughs> I was like, okay, we'll meet at Denny's. And so I go to Denny's in this, you know, completely white suburban area where I'm the only person of color. And there is John with his 10-gallon hat, and he's wearing that members-only white satin jacket with you know, a, a, a KKK member on a on his horse, um, saying and it, in bold letters, the Grand Wizard of the KKK something 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 chapter that was emblazoned on the back of his jacket. Wow. And then there I am sitting across from him, the table with my microphone. You know, people must be wondering what is wrong with this picture. You know, but I got some great stories from him, and one day he paid me a compliment and he says you know Tracy I really like you for a gook and I thought well John I I don't know what to say but um, thank you because that was the highest compliment that he could pay me and and he would then he got to the point where he would always call me about all these stories and and I, I wanted to tell him I don't mind doing these stories but do you understand that when you tell me these things this does not look favorably upon you. And he says, no, 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 we, you know, we're really proud of it. I said, I just want you to know that when I do these stories, I'm not giving you publicity in a good way. Mm-hmm. I am telling people, this is what's going on. You know, maybe people need to be aware. He says, oh, I don't care. I don't care what people think of us. We know what we're doing. So it was this very <laughs> honest and open, you know, sort of source relationship that I never forgot that I was accepted into the KKK. I mean, you know, you see what I look like, you think. And I didn't think about myself as being Asian. I just thought of myself as being Tracy, mm-hmm. you know, until they made me realize, oh, yeah, you are not one of us. Well, you know, what would you say to budding journalists out there, to our listeners, you know, who, who think, okay, you know, I come from... A small island, and how can I make my mark out there in the world? I mean, you've been able to, you know, to travel and do all these fascinating stories across, you know, the globe. So I don't know. What, what would you? What advice would you give an up and comer? You know, I, I always say, just be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Put yourself. Do not think of yourself as as anything other than there to do the job, you know, you know, get, try to get inside a person's head, search for that key way to, to see life from that person's point of view and let your listener experience that. 
you know. And that's what I keep telling the students that I work with with Next Gen. You know, I'm saying that I guess one of the things I keep telling them, and my daughter is always groaning, is defining moments. You know, and I always talk about this defining moments. And I said, you know, when a defining moment comes along, you may not even know it's a defining moment. But when that moment comes along, you either define that moment or the moment defines you. And in that moment, are you going to stick with it? Are you going to give it one more try? Are you going to walk away? Because these are teachable moments. And I, and I always say to them, reach out out of your skin. Yes, it, it's sometimes scary and it is sometimes painful, but you are there for a higher cause. And your cause is to, you know, get into their head and try to convey their story. You know, that's what I did with the, the KKK. That's what I did with um, Jane Roe, the, the real Jane Roe. Um, in Roe versus Wade, Wade. I mm. know her very, very well. I knew her. And I was there when she converted, you know, to be a born-again Christian. I was there. She had called me. I, I did this article on it, on it about, you know, I knew the, the real Jane Roe. And these are uncomfortable moments. And these are moments when you think, God, you know, what the heck am I doing here sitting in the car for five hours waiting? Is this worth it? Yeah, it is. It is because you are there, you know, the front, you've got the front seat to something happening in history. All of these moments are defining moments. And if I walked away, that would define me as, you know, that, that moment would have defined me as, you know, not the journalist that I wanted to be. These are the moments that I grab and say, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna define this moment and say this is what I want to do." And and I did this, and I got these great stories. That, you know, I mean, I I went to countries, you know, for the world that were horrible. Uh, Sierra Leone, Nairobi, was part of Vietnam. You know, the Philippines. I went to areas that were not safe for me, and were scary at times, but I have to put, you know, have my wits about me and say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll have to take care of myself and protect myself, but I'm here to get the story. That's the higher cause. Higher cause. Good advice from Hawaii journalist Tracy Tong. She was on the founding team for the NPR program, The World, which airs at 1 p.m. daily here on HPR. Tong was also part of the early HPR days when the station was on the University of Hawaii campus at the Quarry. Uh, she lives in Boston and currently works as an editor on the Next Gen Radio program and was recently back home here in the islands working with the East-West Center on a training program for young journalists in Fiji. She's to receive the Leo C. Lee Award at the Public Media Journalism Association Conference in Texas later this summer. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanho show, all things Limu. The University of Hawaii gave the nod to name a new building after a native Hawaiian scientist, Isabel Abbott, who some call the first lady of Limu. 
Call our talkback line with your suggestions, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard, find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 